there. Thank you all for coming tonight. If you don't know me, my name is Bryce. I'm one of the leaders here. And today we're beginning our summer series. And what that's going to look like is we're going to be finishing out Ephesians, like Nick said. And we're going to be starting in chapter 4. Actually, a lot of what you'll hear tonight is very similar to what you heard on Sunday from Troy. But, you know, one thing that I learned is that if God is repeating himself, then he's got a point that he wants to make sure is heard. So if you would, turn over to Ephesians chapter 4, and we'll be looking at the first six verses of that. So chapter 4 actually marks the beginning of the second half of the book. And just like the rest of Paul's book, the second half is much more practical in the light of the doctrine of the first half. But the main, the main focus of these first six, the first six verses is unity, and you'll be hearing me say a, that word a lot today. Because the concept is all throughout the verses. There's unity in Christ, unity in the body of Christ, and unity in God himself. So let's start reading, beginning in verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the, vo- of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And now if you've been in church for any length of time, you've probably heard about the importance of the word therefore. And whenever you see it, you should ask yourself, what is the therefore, therefore? The long answer is to go back and read Ephesians again for yourself. And the short answer is what Nick talked about two weeks ago, which we can see the gist of in the, in the last two verses of chapter 3. Now unto, him, now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that God worketh, that worketh in us, unto him be the glory in the church by, Je- by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Because of that, Paul calls himself a prisoner of the Lord because he's in debt. And if you're saved, you're in the same position. So Paul is calling us to live like him in verse 1 of our passage, and that life is what we'll be looking at. So the first point for tonight is the service of unity, which we see in verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. Our vocation is our employment, our calling, or our occupation. And what exactly have, been we, have we been called to do? In Matthew 28, 19-20, Jesus gave the apostles what we call the Great Commission. And he says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you alway, even unto the end of the world. Amen. This work of going and teaching has been passed along to all of us. Even though the specific passage is addressed to Jesus' disciples, Paul has a similar command given under the inspiration of the Spirit in a way that's addressed to us specifically, the church. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, All things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and have given unto us the ministry of reconciliation. This ministry of reconciliation means that it is our duty to restore or bring back people to their creator, or at least give them every chance possible to do so. And the best way for us to do that is by using his word. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2 to preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. So we preach the word and we have it ready at any point, 
because according to Romans 10, 17, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, we see that salvation cometh through faith and not by our own works. So the progression in there is that salvation or reconciliation is ultimately through God's word, and that's why we share it. Then teaching is the second part of the Great Commission, and the way that that applies to us is found in 2 Timothy 2.2, which we commonly use as our verse that lays out the plan of discipleship. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. What you see contained in that verse is four whole generations of disciples. You see Paul, Timothy, faithful men, and others also. Our goal for discipleship is exponential growth to fill this world with, the, with men and women sharing the ministry of reconciliation. But to sum it up, and this is on your sheet, our vocation is the work of bringing people to Christ and growing people in Christ. And then how we walk worthy of this vocation is found in the next couple of verses. So point two of, of your outline is the steps to unity. And those are found in verses two and three. With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And there's a lot that could be said about each of those traits, and I would encourage you to do some study and find out what, they, what, you, what can be said. But to save time, I'd just like to look at two specific characters and what we can learn from them. First, I want to look at meekness. And there's one obvious choice in the Bible for this trait, because God calls him... The, the meekest man in all the earth, and that man's Moses. Numbers 12.3 says, Now the man Moses was very weak above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. And the context of this passage is that Moses' siblings, Miriam and, Abra- Miriam and Aaron, were unhappy with Moses and spoke against God's using of him. And Moses, the, mat- the most mature guy out of all the million Israelites, just let them talk. He didn't react in haste. He didn't condemn them or ask God to judge them. As a matter of fact, God judged them on his own, and Moses prayed for God to, re- to repeal his judgment. Now, an important distinction to make is that meekness does not mean weakness. Moses was chosen of God and had God's power at his disposal. God, through Moses, brought down the ten plagues on Egypt and dismissed nine of them. He split the Red Sea and had Israel cross on dry land, He made water flow from a rock twice, among many other things. Moses was the meekest man on earth and far from the weakest. He is a fantastic picture of the power of God in a vessel of humility, humble but willing and able to take a stand for the glory of God. As Christians, we also have God's power in us, and we are indwelt by his very spirit, which is something that people back then didn't have. I combed through all the mentions of capital S Spirit in the Bible, and all throughout the Old Testament, it says that the Spirit of the Lord came upon someone. And it's not until the New Testament, with one exception I'd have to study out, that you see reference of the Spirit being in someone. That means that we have a very unique privilege. And so what will you do with the power of God that dwells within you, Christian? You can be meek like Moses, Or you can be weak and live camouflaged in with the rest of the world, leaving no impact on anyone around you. And the next guy that I want to look at is a little harder to compare ourselves with. 
but he's the best representation of long-suffering that I know. He's God. Long-suffering is a trait that's attributed to God all throughout the Bible, but there's one verse that I want to focus on because it applies directly to us. 2 Peter 3.9 says that the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, or toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God has held out his judgment all these years because, he's, because he wants everyone to repent and return to him. Long-suffering means suffering long, and it doesn't sound fun because it isn't. It's like an extreme form of patience. But God's patience will run out eventually, and there is a moment where it's too late to repent. And if you're in here and you haven't been saved, I would ask you to talk to myself, Nick, Cody, Bruno, or whoever brought you and ask them what you got to do. Just don't push it off. For those who are saved, though, I want to make this super practical. God has been long-suffering for all this time, waiting for more people to repent and turn to him. So the very least that we can do is be patient and long-suffering with each other now. And that's what Paul is getting at in verse 2 when he tells us to forbear one another in love. Forbear meaning to, pay, to spare or treat with patience. Jesus says in John 13:35, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. And this type of attitude is what shows to the world that we're different. And admittedly, patience and love can be difficult to exercise. That's just because they're not natural to the sinful flesh. Galatians 5:17 tells us that. The flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. So walk in the Spirit, and you can be meek like Moses. You can look to God for patience, and you can love your brethren despite our shortcomings. <clears throat> Life is rough, especially in, a time where we, in, in the time that we live where sin is so easily accessible, and everyone seems focused on what they can take rather than what they can give. We're not immune to that either, by the way. But stand fast in God's truth and endeavor or strive to keep the unity of the Spirit, just like Paul says in verse 3, and we'll be all right. The unity, which all stems from one place, which we'll see in our third point, the source of unity, seen in the last three verses of our passage. There is one body and one Spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. But before we hit this point, I do want to mention something. The one baptism in verse 5 is the spiritual baptism that you see in Romans 6, 3, and 4. should be on the screen. It talks about our immersion in Christ when you get saved. And it's the one baptism that water, that water baptism pictures. Getting immersed in water doesn't actually change or fix anything about you spiritually. But back to the main point, oneness is a theme throughout these three verses, for you Bible students, actually. One is mentioned seven times in them. And that theme of oneness is so, is so important because our God is fully unified, 1 John 5, 7, so he needs to have a unified body here on earth. Paul gives us a very literal illustration of that in 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 27, which we'll only glance at, but starting in verse 12, for as the body is one and hath many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. And then jump down to verse 25. 
that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it, or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now ye are the body of Christ, and members in particular. So as your body functions together, and allow, to allow it to move efficiently, our church body ought also to do the same. There's strength when everything works smoothly, and when that body is damaged, things don't work like they should. So let's look at both sides started with, starting with being united. Ecclesiastes 4, 9-12 says, Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, the one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him that is alone when he falleth, for he hath not another to help him up. Again, if two lie together, then they have heat. But how can one be warm alone? And if one prevail against him, two shall withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Nick actually used these exact verses last message, and I swear I already had them in my notes. Because Ecclesiastes is great. It's King Solomon's exploration of everything that the world had to offer. And even when he exhausted everything and found everything to be vanity, he still understood that teamwork is dream work. <laughs> and if you've been, huh? That's a good word. And if you've been in the main services where Pastor Troy has been going through Acts, you might remember the bit where he elaborated on the phrase, with one accord. This phrase, when in the context of the apostles in Acts, is used when they all come together with unity in prayer. Look in Acts 1.14. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. You can see a couple more examples in Acts 2.46 and Acts 4.24. But in those times, they had one goal and were in perfect agreement and harmony. And when they came together to pray like this, God moved. That's not to say that God works the same way that he did in Acts, because he doesn't. It's different time periods, different dispensations. But things will happen if you pray according to God's will. 1 John 5.14 says so. And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. Then to flip the script, look at what being divided brings. So just like your physical body, when something is wrong spiritually, the body of the church won't function correctly either. When Paul first wrote to the church in Corinth, they were all sorts of messed up because they were carnal and living in the flesh. 1 Corinthians 3.3 says, For ye are yet carnal, and whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? This is a church who was not walking in the Spirit, which made them fall into the lust of the flesh. They were broken, sinful, and wicked group of Christians that did not strive to keep the unity. And that's why Paul had to write this scathing letter as a rebuke of their actions. Aside from how it affected the church within, imagine how it affected the world's view of the church without. This church is a completely separate group from the world, and these people in Corinth weren't living like it. They even went to worldly courts in chapter 6 to settle legal issues within themselves. All this did was provide an image of division and dysfunction of God's people to the world. I'm not trying to accuse anybody of that. All I want to do is warn you of the dangers of conforming to the world system. Division and dysfunction is all that awaits you. Jesus tells the disciples in Matthew 5, 14 through 16, Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light to all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. 
as lights, we should be illuminating the darkness around us, not doing our best to fit in with it. We reflect, we reflect the brightness of Almighty God and therefore should act accordingly. Why would anybody want to change their ways and give glory to God if his people are no different than they are? Dividers are people who have snuffed their lights and chosen to live and chosen a life that follows sin rather than God. And that sin can permeate and contaminate a church just like it did in Corinth. But the good news is that sin can be purged and sinners can be forgiven. And that's what our God is waiting for. So, t- so let's take advantage of this time to go forth and be lights. We have the service to share, a world, to share the word that brings people to Christ. We know the steps and how we must live to be strong. And we know the source of the power in us, a unified God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in us all. So the ball is in your court. What will you do with what you're given? You can strive for unity, or you can go with the flow. Luckily, you're in a really good church that's flowing in a good direction. But we can always use more people. Or you can be a divider, but don't. (laughs) (laughs) Let's pray. We can head to our discussion groups. Oh, God, thank you so much for a word that you've given us and a word that we can study, Lord. Thank you for the church, for a people who love each other and who can work together to strive to follow you and follow what you've given us, Lord. Thank you for the brothers and sisters that we can link arms together with and just fight the good fight together because a threefold cord is not quickly broken, Lord. And thank you for the people who teach us, Lord. Thank you for the people who have taught me, Lord. And I just pray that as we leave tonight, we can just keep in mind what you've shown us through these six verses, Lord, that being unified is being strong and being in you, Lord, is to be one strong unit, Lord. And I just pray for tonight with these discussion groups, Lord, that you'll be with us, be with the discussion, Lord, and help people to be open and discuss everything. And just, Lord, help us to glorify you through it all. And in your name, amen.